And now from the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Stephanie Murphy truly is a great American story. Born in Vietnam a few years after the war, she and her family fled tyranny and were rescued at sea by the U.S. Navy, raised in a trailer park in Virginia. She worked her way through college and graduate school and post-9-11 became a young star at the Department of Defense, working as an analyst at the highest levels of the Pentagon. Later, after moving with her family to Florida, she was elected to three terms in Congress, where she stood out from the partisans and ideologues and bloviators and earned a reputation as an earnest and incisive problem solver. In the end, however, Stephanie Murphy may be most remembered for her service on the fateful January 6th committee. We talked about all of this when I sat down with her earlier this week. Here's our conversation. Stephanie Murphy, it's great to see you. Thank you for for being here. It's great to be with you. So I have to confess, when someone told me in 2016, we have a candidate we're excited about in Central Florida, and her name is Stephanie Murphy. I reacted like your typical Chicago politician. I said, well, Stephanie Murphy, that's a great ballot name. (laughs) Everybody loves the Irish, but that's not your story. And so tell me your story from the incredible beginnings. Yeah, I'm sure when you heard Stephanie Murphy, you didn't think an Asian woman with an Irish name. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I do think that that helped um, with my first poll. Um, I had 6% name ID, and that couldn't have been somebody who actually (laughs) knew me. I'm pretty sure they thought I was the local bar owner. But but yeah, so an unlikely um, story as to how I found myself in 2016 running for um, public office. You know, my family and I are refugees and immigrants from No, and Vietnam. that's a story I'm interested in, yeah. So I was six months old, and my brother was eight, and it was the aftermath of the Vietnam War. My parents were um, people who were uh, likely targeted for um, uh, persecution by the new Vietnamese government because they had worked for the U.S. military and for the former um, South Vietnamese government. And so I think they were looking at the prospect of raising my brother and I in a country without freedoms, uh, where the government oppressed its people, um, and really made a brave decision. They decided that they were going to escape by boat in the dead of night rather than to um, continue to to live um, in that situation. And so we got on a boat with a couple dozen other Vietnamese people um, and got out to international waters and simply ran out of fuel. Um, my dad was actually at the helm of the the boat. Um, he was the captain. And so I often say that, you know, his bravery wasn't quite matched by his logistics skills. Um, <laughs> so we are without fuel, running low on food and water when a U.S. Navy ship found our boat. Um, And they, at that time, were given orders not to um, pick uh, refugees up if their vessel was still seaworthy. And so they gave us food, fuel, and water, and our vessel was still seaworthy. And so we um, made it to Malaysia. But when we get to Malaysia, Malaysia is done with uh, refugees. So they tow this tugboat back out to uh, international waters. 
And my dad captains us back in and he tells the men on the boat that they're going to stay and help him scuttle the ship and the women and children he was going to get in as close as he could to shore and they should jump and swim. Oh my. So that's essentially how we ended up in a Malaysian refugee camp. How'd you get there? You didn't swim at six months. They gave me to a young man that they thought could make the swim from the boat to shore with a baby. Oh, jeez. Yeah. That may, be, that may have been the hardest decision of all. <laughs> my mom, I think they didn't really have a whole lot of uh, good choices. She had to help my brother get to shore. So, you know, and I think you have to imagine how awful things must have been for them to have taken that kind of risk with, you know, small children. I think I have incredible amounts of empathy um, when I see migrants and, and refugees what must they have um, been facing that they they decided to take that chance? And I think I, my parents always used to say, you know, they, that they they knew that we might not make the journey, but that maybe it was better for us to like all die together in search of of light and freedom than it was to live on in darkness. And um, so I think about you know the the bravery um, and the risks that they took, but they were like so many other parents, right? There's just, everyone's circumstances can be different, but parents will do just about anything to make sure that their children have a better life than they did. Yeah. Your story speaks to me particularly. My father was a uh, refugee from Eastern Europe during the pogroms, and they had a similar sort of hair-raising story about getting out and being separated and finding each other again and it was you know and for just the reason you said you know just in search of safety and a better life and freedom so uh how did they how and when did they get to the united states actually uh, an act of political courage that paved the way for um my parents to to make it to the united states so this is the late 70s. Receiving Southeast Asian refugees was polling negatively. Um, I think like 65% of the American people didn't want to take any more refugees. And the Carter administration um, were watching this humanitarian disaster um, that was happening as people tried to flee um, by boat. And we were they were called boat people, hundreds of thousands yes, of people yeah. died at sea um, in, in their attempts to escape. And so he sends his vice president, Mondale, to the United Nations. And Mondale's um, speechwriter, he writes a speech that basically reminds the world that they turned a blind eye in the, uh, the 30s to Jewish refugees. And they didn't know how they were going to be received at the United Nations. But they get the standing ovation. And then a bunch of ally countries um, all increase their caps for the number of refugees they're going to take, including the United States, who had led the way there. And so um, uh, my family and I were let in under the uh, newly raised caps um, and sponsored by a Lutheran church um, in Virginia, and they relocated us uh, to southern, like rural Virginia. I want to um, ask you about your life there, but before I do, you, you said you feel empathy for for migrants who are fleeing unconscionable circumstances. What do you make of the controversy today about the border and uh, the 
the, the battle in Congress, uh, the Congress in which you served over this issue. You must have a lot of thoughts about this. I do. Um, also because when I was in Congress, we did pass a border supplemental um, with Trump in the White House at the time. And it was one of the um, bigger political fights I think um, I was engaged in in my time in, in Washington. And I come at this both from the perspective of somebody who was a refugee and an immigrant, but I also worked at the Department of Defense and worked in national security. And I believe that a country has an obligation to its citizens to secure its borders. We should know who and what comes across our borders. And so I think it's both a national security and a humanitarian issue. With what's going on right now, for Democrats, too often we stake out positions that just aren't tenable from a policy perspective for the sake of immigrants, right? It was hard to negotiate with Democrats because they weren't willing to give anything when it came to immigration. And I feel like Democrats have kind of walked themselves into this corner where on immigration, more is better because we believe in a diverse society. So they say more is better. And then less is racist. And that's just too narrow of a box to approach a complex issue like immigration in. And so, so that's on our side. And on the other side, I find that what they're doing right now, um, playing politics with a, a good solution that would help secure the border, would create um, some pathways, would address the humanitarian crisis. And that, you know, there are people who will say that presidential politics are the reason why they're not willing to move forward with uh, a solution that addresses the border. Well, Trump says no. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. that simple, isn't it? Yeah. And, and that tells you that the Republican Party has sort of lost its way from its policy positions. It's now just a personality driven purely by personality. So let's let's get back to your own story you came so you came to virginia you came to kind of a rural area in virginia yeah lived in a trailer park yes we at this time um spotsylvania county fredericksburg was very homogenous i was the only person of color in my elementary school my parents worked really hard they worked multiple jobs but we lived in a trailer park and grew up in you know, very much working class and among a lot of working class Americans. I think that gave me perspective. It also, you know, my parents worked really hard, but they really wanted me to focus on my education because they always told me that my education was my pathway, the way in which I could make my life better than theirs. Yeah. Kind of a classic immigrant story. You said you were the only person, child of color in your school and so on. Was that entirely comfortable? Were you totally received, well received? Did you, or did you feel different? I think I, um, you know, I did feel different, but I learned to distinguish between people's like genuine curiosity about the unknown and, and any sort of more cynical approach to how people treat, treated um, people. Who well, were bias yeah. is what caricatures bias. I mean, you must've run into both. I did. I, and so America in the late 70s and 80s really didn't want to remember or have any reminders of the Vietnam War. And so obviously being a, a Vietnamese person for 
some people, it was a painful reminder of a time that they wish they could put out of their minds. And I, I often remembered um, people would say to me, so where are you from? And I'd say Virginia or Fredericksburg or whatever. And they'd say, no, where are you really from? And that, that had the undertone of, okay, well, what kind of Asian are you? But I felt pretty well, you know, I was, I was comfortable in my hometown. I didn't, I didn't fear people. I didn't, you know, I knew that I was different, and, but it didn't feel hostile. Maybe it's a better way to say it. Your folks worked day and night. Yeah. To support the family. They did. They they used to take my brother and I um, after their day jobs. They cleaned office buildings and banks at night, and so they would take us with them and you know help empty trash cans and things like that. So, um, but it always makes me feel um, a lot of pride. And I'm in the sense that my parents showed up in America with just their bare hands, and they worked so hard. And I find myself sometimes sitting in those boardrooms and in the places that I used to go help my parents clean, you know, and that that's a story that can only happen in America, I think. Having served in the White House, having done the things I've done, I mean, I, you know, we have to have enforceable borders and there need to be rules that are observed and enforced. On the other hand, you know, I listened to your story and I've heard so many others, and I'd like to think my family's story is part of this as well. This is not just about the generosity of America. This is about the strength of America. People coming here who are highly motivated to work hard, to provide something better for their children. I mean, you studied economics. This isn't just a matter of humanitarian spirit. It's also economically savvy to want to be the country where people come to be strivers. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. And for so long, America embraced that. And now, you know, we talk about how unemployment is low, but we actually have a lot of challenges with our workforce and shortages. And I always found it really interesting that some of my more conservative um, constituents would come into my office and say, you know, we we really need um some immigrant workers. We need to be able to have more of these workers. And, I'm, and I would say to them, I'm like, don't come whisper it to a Democratic office. Go, go, yell, go yell at your Republican representatives, right? Like this, you can't, you can't, um, because you're a conservative, shy away from this immigration issue when you will quietly acknowledge that the, that creates an economic uh, and a labor force issue for you. I, I mean, I'll give you um, one example that I've been thinking a lot about. I, but we have a a shortage of of care workers, home health care workers, but also in nursing homes and in uh, other in group homes. You're so right about that. You went to William and Mary College. Tell me about the experience of going from uh, your small rural community to college. Being a first generation college student. And, you know, we never really ate out when I was a kid. Um, we ate at home. So it was mostly Vietnamese food. And so when I got to college, I had the cafeteria and I didn't know how to put together a, an American meal. So I think for the first, oh, I don't know, for probably first month or so, I ate peas, soft serve ice cream. Did you think about saying to your roommate or others, hey, how, how do you manage this? What do you, 
I think having grown up, like I mentioned, where I was the only um, Asian person, only person of color in my school, I got really good at observing other people. When you're a child, you want nothing more than to fit in. And so I got really good at observing other people and and being able to mimic what would um, allow me to fit in. And so, you know, I I noticed that my tray did not look like everybody else's tray did. And so I just sort of observed and, okay, I, I need to get a salad. I'm going to get some protein. And so sort of learned how to adapt. You went to graduate school at Georgetown and you worked at Deloitte, which is a consulting firm. I'm sure when you went to Deloitte, you went with the idea that you were going to build a career in the corporate world and make the living that your parents never could make and that you hope to make and so on. I mean, is that a fair surmise? Yes. I, I, I took the highest paying offer that I was, that my skills and my interviewing skills um, had secured for me. And I went into the private sector, but I had worked for General Scowcroft um, at the Scowcroft Group. Former National Security Advisor. That's right. And when I was in college, I interned for him. And I had, during that internship, had a chance to meet so many incredible former public servants. And they'd had these great careers. And he gave this speech um, at my graduation. And he talked about how public service was so important and that the future of this great country rests in the hands that are at the helm of state. And I remember thinking to myself, having already taken that offer to join Deloitte, that boy, I think I just made a mistake <laughs> because it it was, I thought of public service as something, a career that I admired and would one day want to see myself do that. So then 9-11 happens and I think to myself, this my my country is under attack. Um, I I need to I need to do that public service thing now before I get too far down this corporate career and it becomes financially impossible to walk away. And you went to work at the Department of Defense. That's right. I went to work at the Department of Defense and I explained it to my parents um, that I was going back to grad school, but that I was probably going to go work for the government where I would be making less money than I made when I was working in the private sector, having accrued um, graduate school uh, debt. And financially, it didn't make a lot of sense. How did they take it? I think they understood that I felt like I owed this country something and that this was my way of paying back both their debt and mine. But I, I bet they thought that my econ degree hadn't done me <laughs> much good, given the financial calculus that I had just made. You went to work at the Department of Defense, originally for the Navy, ironically, the Navy that helped uh, save your family in the budget area. I want to ask you, what is a Murphy's Velvet Hammer? Because <laughs> it may say something about your role at yeah. the Pentagon. Yeah, so I got that nickname when I was at the Pentagon. Um, I did start on the Navy staff, but then I had moved on, and I got that name, the Velvet Hammer, when I was helping write the Secretary's guidance for the department. And it was a global effort where you know, we were creating priorities. And so I often had to go talk to people who were pretty senior in the military to tell them that, you know, unfortunately, their their area of interest wasn't a 
priority or wasn't where they wanted to be prioritized. And so those were sometimes tough conversations when you're staring down four stars. Um, but, uh, you know, it was, it was an interesting, um, experience and, um, definitely, uh, a, a good experience, um, insofar as learning how to talk to people who you are not, um, it's like managing up or managing people you don't have any authority over. You became so, uh, renowned for your deft skill in delivering bad news that the the hawk and dove in washington which is a a bar and restaurant actually created a drink called murphy's velvet hammer (laughs) they did i thought that might be one of my greatest dc achievements is to have made it onto (laughs) the bar menu at hawk and dove we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the axe files This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Feeling overwhelmed with the constant flow of headlines and trying to keep up with the latest twist of this election year? Take a deep breath and turn on Crooked Media's What A Day podcast. In just 20 short minutes, What A Day hosted by me, Juanita Tolliver, and my co-hosts, Trey Val Anderson, Josie Duffy Rice, and Priyanka Arabindi, breaks down the biggest news stories into bite-sized pieces that don't make you want to cry. And the best part is, we do it every day. So start your day off right with What A Day, available wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And now back to the show. You spent six years or so at the Pentagon. And part of it, you were really focused on Asia and Asian policy. Through the lens of that experience, tell me what you see today, and particularly with relationship to China, which is such a front and center issue today. And you know, a flare point in American politics. So in the early 2000s, when I was at the Department of Defense, we had two wars going on in the Middle East, and then a tsunami hit um, the Asia-Pacific region. And we responded with humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. And what it did for us was it, you know, the this large Muslim nation like Indonesia, um, we built so much goodwill with the use of um, American forces in a humanitarian uh, assistance disaster relief way. And so we learned that there were, that our military could be used um, to build alliances and to build relationships and not just be used as a kinetic force. Um, and so it was a, a 
an opportunity to really build relationships in the Asia Pacific um, by building partner capacity. When I look at what has happened, what our China policy is, I'm really worried. You know, while bipartisanship is good on most things, this bipartisan agreement to be very anti-China makes me concerned that we're going to pass policies that are not nuanced enough for the challenges of China and of that region. In 2018, in that cycle, I remember the attack ads um, against me was um, accusations of being soft on China and being a socialist. Here's a woman who escaped from a socialist country, um, and they it was done in fairly racist overtones. You know, yeah, I, I would imagine that was the purpose. Right, in Mao Zedong hats and, and really trying to... Um, uh, attack me on on being having an affiliation with China. And when something becomes that political, it creates a situation where politicians are take a look at their votes and they are concerned that the vote might look soft on China. And so, you know, they pushed a lot of bills that are out there and some of them make sense. Some of them hurt our supply chains and hurt American consumers more than they actually have the intended effect on China, but it takes a very um, strong politician to stand up and say, okay, well, the nuance of that bill um, doesn't make sense for my constituents, um, even though they know that they're going to be hit for being soft on China, because the bill has been billed as this anti-China bill. So I think that's concerning because it makes you pass bad legislation. I mean, it's not helped by the fact that Xi Jinping is a very aggressive leader and obviously has expansionist notions, so that feeds this narrative. Yeah, it does. And and I'm not suggesting that there aren't reasons to be concerned about China's um, policies. I mean, their, their espionage networks, their, um, you know, violations of um, corporate IP, all of these things are should are of concern and should be handled. Um, I just think, you know, sometimes when Washington gets in a place where they're trying to outdo one another on anti-China policy, um, you don't always end up with the kind of nuance um, that you need for something this complicated. Yeah. Um, you were also there during a, two wars. Uh, and how did that color everything that was going on in the Pentagon? You know, if China is the pacing threat today, the Middle East was the pacing uh, issue back then. One thing I noticed about the department, though, is that when there is a pacing threat, the entire department tries to orient itself to be relevant to said threat, right? Um, and so you, you kind of, because that's how money is distributed um, and priorities are made. And so back then, counterterrorism and um, the wars in the Middle East, really, everybody was trying to orient themselves that way. And I think today, you know, we've shifted from CENTCOM and CENTCOM being the center of the department to now the Indo-Pacific Command being sort of the the main um, player and, and the other components have to figure out how they fit into the pacing threat of China. Although now the Middle East is starting to flare up again and that'll be an interesting shift for the department. Yeah, I mean, just overnight before we have this had this conversation, uh, we learned that uh, three American service people were killed in a drone attack, many more injured, injured. that were uh, inspired by Iran through uh, their various agent groups. 
And we just lost two special operators, two SEALs last week uh, as they um, uh, attempted to board a Dow uh, that had Iranian contraband that was heading into the region. So, so you know, the president said the country's going to respond. Take us inside that sort of decision-making process because clearly you have to respond when Americans are killed and injured. On the other hand, full-out war with Iran is a very costly venture in terms of lives, in terms of resources. Well, the military leaders are probably preparing options um, at this moment and a range of options uh, for the political leaders um, at the department and for the president to choose from. Unfortunately, this is a difficult situation that um, there aren't a ton of good options. Um, and Iran has been a bad actor who has worked through these proxy groups for a long time now. Um, and, you know, I, I'm hearing the political, you know, Republicans want to hit uh, the president on being soft and are, you know, calling for yeah. um, assertive action. And, but, you know, those are consequences. And I think it weighs heavily on um, the civilian leadership at the department, but I'm sure in the White House as well, um, that, you know, there are consequences. And those are American um, American men and women that you're going to be putting um, at risk, and depending on which one of these uh, options you, you choose, right? And there are consequences to whatever you do. You know, it's very easy to sit in the peanut gallery and say, we got to hit them and we got to hit them hard. And that is an appropriate reaction. But you also, if you're sitting in the, in the, in the decision-making seats, uh, you have to calculate, okay, what are the next three things that we're, are going to happen if we do this? And what are the cost of those things? It's a very, you know, this, this is a not well-appreciated part of the job. And so you can call the president a coward, as one senator did, if he doesn't hit Iran directly and hard. But I remember briefings about what a conflict with Iran would look like. And uh, there wasn't, among the military, there was a very sober assessment of that. The last question before I get back to your journey, having served when you did at the height of the worst time in the war in Iraq, do you consider that a mistake looking back? Was that a, you know, I do. So, yeah, I, it's hard to, with the um, perspective, to look at that and not see it as a mistake, right? Um, especially the things that we've learned about the tenuous connection that uh, the Bush administration at that time was trying to make between Iraq and, and the terrorist organizations. And by the time. And I weapons would, of mass destruction. And weapons of mass destruction, right? Yeah. You must have experienced a lot, a lot of loss. Yes, I, I think that was one of the hardest things um, was to work with men and women in uniform, but to also watch them deploy and some not come home. It's a civilian-controlled military, and there's deep respect for that tradition um, in the United States. But it weighs on me that it is political civilians, political types and, and civilians who make these decisions, but it is the military families that bear that brunt. And so as a um, political person, I think you have to be very responsible about the the policy decisions that you make when it 
comes to sending men and women in uniform overseas. So you left and you moved back to you moved to Central Florida with your your husband Sean, who you met at Deloitte, I guess. Right. Was that a hard decision for you? It was a hard decision because I was at a job that I loved. Um, but he had gotten a chance to basically start and run his own business, and it was in Central Florida. And so while I was uh, flying around to uh, commands all around the world and doing my job, he was going to Florida. And, you know, we at first thought, oh, we'll do, um, we're a modern couple. We'll, we'll just commute to our jobs and it'll be great. And it got to the point where, you know, really the, we were waving at each other in airports um, as we passed by and it wasn't really tenable. So I, I left the department and went back to the private sector um, in Florida. You also, I have to get this story in because I love this story, but your, your, your husband's business uh, is a uh, sporting goods apparel business. Uh, and one of the things that he was uh, producing were softball pants for women, for women's softball teams. And he asked you to, to mo- I guess, model them. And you came away with a whole different scheme for how these pants should be <laughs> developed. Tell me about that. Yeah. So I used to um, try them on for him. I was like fit model, uh, his gear. And I remember putting on the softball pants and I don't play softball. Um, the women's softball pants and I'm like, these are awful. Like, who are you selling these to? These are, these are uncomfortable and they're just really awful. And he said, well, this is what everybody sells. It's just men's pants made smaller in in the industry. They call it pink it and shrink it. And so but at that time, women's athleisure was really starting to take off, and women were expecting more out of their um, athletic clothes. And so I said to him, I was like, these are awful. And he said, well, you know, put your money where your mouth is, like, help me make them not awful. And so I had grown up at my mom's knee, basically, and she was a, a tailor and a seamstress. So I knew my way around patterns and sewing. And so I did a bunch of research and I saw, you know, women who play softball come in all shapes and sizes and none of them look like they enjoy wearing their pants. So we just basically rebuilt them. We we rebuilt the waist um, so that it sat a little lower in the front, but had coverage in the back. We changed the materials. We made all these changes um, to the way women's pants, uh, women's softball pants are are constructed and uh, got it patented. That became, yeah, you got it patented. That became the prevailing model for what softball pants for women that along with the murphy's velvet hammer this is one of your (laughs) unlikely legacies i guess so it's uh kind of a fun little thing that i uh helped do for his company this was used against you actually because you're i guess these pants were manufactured in i don't know if they still are in china and one of your opponents raised this as an example of undue collaboration yeah 90 what 97 percent of American athletic apparel was manufactured in China, although with uh, recent tariffs and changes over the last couple of years, that's shifted to other places as people look to diversify um, where they produce. Um, But yeah, at the time, you know, he produced them in China, just like everybody else uh, did. But yes, it became a political cudgel. I was always okay with the attacks and the sacrifices that I made personally. I really didn't love it when they drugged my family into the mess. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk about how you got into the mess of politics. When you were originally approached in 2016 by the Democrats, 
They were looking for advice. They weren't looking to recruit you. How did you end up being the candidate? They needed to find a candidate for this uh, recently redistricted um, seat. And I uh, agreed to help them find somebody in the community that would run. And, um, and at some point in those conversations, they were like, well, why don't you do this? And I said, well, because I have two kids, two jobs. I was teaching at um, a local liberal arts school in addition to my um, day job. And, you know, I'm not really interested in politics. And then we got to June of 2016, and they still didn't have somebody who was going to run against this longtime uh, Republican incumbent. And um, then the Pulse nightclub shooting happens in my community. And 49 uh, innocent people uh, lose their lives to an act of terrorism, but also an act of hate. And I thought to myself, you know, you can't have the kinds of people at the highest level spewing all kinds of hateful rhetoric. And the, the incumbent took a check from the NRA just a couple days after the shooting happened. And so I thought to myself, well, why don't I run? And I, I don't think, I'm not sure I thought I could win but I felt like the community deserved an opportunity to have a debate about the issues that mattered to them. So I, and I actually wasn't even a Democrat. So I had to change my voter registration from independent to Democrat on a Monday. I announced on a Wednesday and I filed on the Friday um, at the end of June, which was the very last day you could file to run against, run in, in the congressional race. And if I hadn't filed, the um, incumbent would have run unopposed. And you won. Yeah, I did. I, I ran a four-month campaign and I won. And this issue of guns was one that you were deeply involved in. The thing that you fought most vigorously for was this commonsensical idea that we shouldn't proscribe the CDC and other government agencies from studying the problem of gun violence and its impacts and potential solution. Yeah, when I got elected, um, uh, Trump was elected too, and I went to Washington, a completely Republican-held Washington. Um, and so I was trying to think about what I could convince cons uh, conservative colleagues to support. And I thought, at a bare minimum, let's get the facts. And so um, I introduced the bill to lift the 22-year ban on gun violence research, and um, and I. Uh, it was after the Parkland shooting that I got. Uh, Republican um, member Carlos Curbelo to be my first Republican to sign on to the bill. And then I got more Republicans. And then I was invited to the White House to talk to the president about gun violence. And I pressed him uh, on my bill, my proposal. And as I was leaving that meeting, uh, Vice President Pence says to me, of all the proposals that were discussed today, yours is one we could probably live with. And at that point, I knew that if I could get it into the appropriations bill, um, there wouldn't be objections uh, by uh, the White House and that we likely could get it into law. And so we just started sprinting towards that potential opportunity and, and got it done. Tell me what it was like with Trump. And you, you were in several meetings with Trump. In fact, I think you were criticized for meeting with Trump, but you, you, you saw him on several different occasions. Yeah, I mean, I went to Washington with the perspective that um, I couldn't wait for Washington uh, to look the way I wanted it to as far as who held the White House and the Senate and the House. I just needed to figure out how to work with the people who were there. And um, so I did work quite a bit with the Trump White House, which 
kind of became an ironic thing when I ended up sitting on the January 6th select committee. Um, but I believed in calling balls and strikes and where I could work with him. I had a responsibility to my constituents to do so. And where I thought um, he was wrong, I had a responsibility to stand up and say so. What were the most uh, difficult moments for you where you supported the White House and aroused the ire of your either your colleagues or your Democrat constituents? I think on immigration it was one of the key areas where um, we 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 had some challenges because I was supportive of the bipartisan um, border package that had passed the Senate uh, and um, wanted to see us uh, get that passed into law so that we could send money to the border um, as soon as possible, uh, both for the humanitarian needs, but also so that we could do a better job with securing our border. And I think that was really hard. You know, I thought. Fighting with Republicans was sort of par for the course. It was harder when you had to fight with Democrats. It always felt a little bit harsher because you expected Republicans to come after you. You didn't really expect for Democrats to come after you. And I think, um, you know, when Biden was president, um, I uh, was part of an effort to try to separate the infrastructure bill from the Build Back Better package so that we could get infrastructure dollars out the door as soon as possible and to get a win. Um, and, you know, that was another one of those fights that I will remember for a long time, um, you know, trying to do what I thought was pragmatic and um, reasonable for my constituents, but didn't sit well with my own party. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And now, back to the show. When you look at Congress now, I mean, we're talking about this immigration bill and the fact that the House said if the Senate passes the bipartisan bill that, that they're working on, that it's dead on arrival. Uh, they're you know, implementing impeachment proceedings today, I think, against Secretary Mayorkas from the Department of Homeland Security. Talk about the climate there now. Yeah, the the climate there has resulted in the most uh, ineffective Congress in recent history. And I think they've um, been able to pass very few things. Um, and I think, you know, that's a disservice to the American people. They want to see a government that functions. One thing, though, that is a positive side is that because the margins are so narrow and because um, the Republicans have had a hard time uh, managing their uh, right flank, and they have two um, extremists on the Rules Committee, which is this arcane committee that decides what gets to be voted on on the floor. Ironically, it has pushed um, the Republican leadership to only be able to pass things that can pass in a bipartisan way that can be done under uh, suspension where they don't have to go through the Rules Committee, um, but that requires Democratic votes. And a lot of them. So that's a, an ironic 
uh, outcome here. For me, I I have um, I'm still running um, my pack. It's called the Center Aisle Pack, and I think the way out of this is to elect more uh, center left, center right people, people who are there um, not to scream from the wings, but to try to work from the middle. Um, and that's what uh, my my pack focuses on trying to do is identify people like that. You served in the House on the Armed Services Committee, and obviously you have a deep, deep understanding of national security. One of the things that's going on right now is that aid to Ukraine has been held up for months and months at a critical juncture in this protracted war uh, with Russia. And it's also straining uh, relationships with allies who are also feeling political pressures over this war. Talk about that and what the impact of the holdup of those funds are and about the NATO alliance, which was strengthened around this issue, but now faces a pressure test, which is, I guess, what Putin was counting on. Yeah, I I think the delay in providing Ukraine with the additional aid um, is really devastating, not just for the Ukrainians, but for American leadership in the world. Um, I think that our politicians haven't done a good job explaining to the American people uh, what is in it for us when we um, stand with democracies like Ukraine. What's in store for us if we don't? That's right. Because if Vladimir Putin can roll into Ukraine, then what is his next move? And how does that impact these NATO countries to whom we are bound by treaty? That's right. And when I talk to my European counterparts, they tell us that you know this is an existential threat for them. This is something that uh, they do believe that his ambitions uh, are to continue to roll through Europe. Um, and they're really concerned, especially with those NATO, the bordering NATO countries. And so I think if we can't get this package, and I, I, I regret that this Congress allowed this funding to, the negotiation around the funding to bleed into a po- presidential political year, because I know how hard it is to get things done. And I think they're almost out of time if they aren't already um, to get funding done. And I am concerned that if we have a Trump administration, there will be no more funding. And who knows what will happen with our NATO alliance. And I think all of those things are deeply, deeply concerning to me. But it's it's a it's a real it's an embarrassment and a shame that the Ukrainians have fought so hard. And we haven't we haven't had to send a single person to to carry on that fight. We're just providing them with the equipment they need to defend their country. And now we're losing the will to do even that. Um, that's that's embarrassing, I think, uh, for a country that is a leading democratic um, nation. I don't know. Well, the leading democratic nation. Yeah, right. You and Kathleen Rice, a congresswoman from New York, were roommates. <laughs> yes. In Washington, and one of your uh, one of your friends was uh, Kirsten Cinema, the senator from Arizona, now an independent senator. I could ask you a ton of questions about her when the insurrection happened. Talk about that, uh, because she played a role in in that day for you. But just talk about the whole experience and what you were thinking as you went through it. Yeah, so in the run-up to January 6th, we had gotten enough news coverage to know that it might be a, a difficult day with protesters and such. And so the three of us had planned that we would stay in uh, Senator Cinema's hideaway, which 
was in the basement of the Capitol. And that would leave us equidistance to the House floor and the Senate floor. And I think because I worked in national security, I um, packed a go bag and had my staff drop it at my office um, before January 6th. And in it had a couple changes of clothes, things I might need if I weren't, I wasn't able to leave the building. Um, you were that concerned about what might happen that day? Yes. And so we, on January 6th, and I had made plans on how I would enter the building, not going through the main doors. I had basically come to work in um, civilian clothes and shoes that I could move in. So I had sneakers on and I knew I had work clothes at the office that I could change into. I'd been through a few of these protests before, and I think that's why I took the extra precautions. When things started happening where they were letting us know that there were bomb scares or bomb threats and they had evacuated the Cannon building and people were all piled into the Longworth building, that's when we made our way down to the hideaway thinking that was going to be the safest place for us to be. And um, as we got down to the hideaway, I could the doors were already starting to bulge and the um, the officers were down there trying to hold the door. And one officer who had just come off the line looked at us and was like, you two shouldn't be down here. And I thought it was too late now. It was, we can't get back to my office. And so we just got to the hideaway and um, were locked in there for a while. And uh, we heard when the protesters broke into the building, we could hear them stampeding above us. Um, and um, uh, Senator Cinema. She texted us and said, they're, they're evacuating them. Um, and once she got to the safe uh, room, she said, I'm going to send a team for you, send a, a team of Capitol Police for you. And so sure enough, they came. Not what on. were you thinking during that period? I mean, how fearful were you? And what were you thinking as someone who fled, whose family fled for fear of their safety because of politics? It was scary because we were so close to where all of the riders were really trying to break through the doors. And so we could hear it all. We could hear um, the Capitol Police officers struggling. Um, we could hear them yelling at each other. I mean, we were in the middle of all that chaos. And I think as an American, it was just heart-wrenching for me um, to be in the heart of the Capitol and to have my fellow Americans um, trying to pound down the doors, hurting law enforcement, and hunting for people like me. So my brother is a Trump Republican, and he texted me in the midst of all of this. And I think he didn't really understand the severity of all of it or where I was in the midst of all of it, but he texted me something fairly political, and I just about lost my mind. But it also underscored for me that our country is super divided right now in politics. People rationalize things depending on what their politics are. And to, to get that message from somebody who I'm close to and really underscored for me uh, why we were in that kind of moment is that people are really divided in this country. And are you still close? Yes, we're, we're, we're very close. And I was pretty upset uh, that day that he didn't call to say, hey, are you okay? But rather, it was a text message about the politics of what was happening out there. And you you must also have been, I mean, as I as think every member must have been, you, must, you, you had young children. We just came across a little video my son had recorded that day, um, and he's getting ready for bed. Why he 
probably six or seven at the time. And he just was like, um, you know, I'm glad you're okay. And um, I'm sorry you have to go back to work because we we knew that we would be voting all night. Um, and I guess my husband had at least relayed that much to him. But, you know, I think that was hard. It was hard for everybody who has family to to imagine that they might not get to see their kids again. And your husband? Yeah, my my husband was in touch with me throughout the day, so he, he sort of knew when I got to the safe area. And but he must have been freaking out. It wasn't great. I mean, as you can imagine, if you're an American, you're sitting at home looking at your spouse's um, place of work, under basically siege. Yeah. under siege. Yeah, you wanted to be on the January sixth committee. Why did you want to be on that committee? So. In the aftermath of January 6th, I uh, was one of the first members to call for a 9-11 style commission to investigate what had happened as we tried to make sure that nothing like 9-11 would ever happen again. And so to me, I thought of January 6th in a similar manner. And um, and to be honest, when I called for a commission, I had no idea that um, January 6th was the culmination of weeks and months of um, of activity by the Trump administration that led to that uh, day. I, I honestly thought maybe it was a day that, um, you know, a riot that got off, out of hand and that there were things that we as law enforcement, the different people who are responsible for law enforcement in the Washington capital area could improve on so that you know, and then I also thought about it from a national security perspective. I, I thought, gosh, January 6th just showed all of our adversaries that we are a soft target. And so we have to find ways to reinforce um, the the capital. And and I really thought that that's what this commission was going to be focused on and look at. But you learned a lot. We did learn a lot. We learned that, yes, while there were areas where there could be better coordination for law enforcement, January 6th was very much a deliberate um, last stand uh, to overturn a free and fair election um, orchestrated by the former president. Was there a point where you said, oh my God, this is beyond anything that I ever could have imagined? Yeah, I, as we continued to uh, hold depositions and it, it be, the picture became uh, clearer and clearer that um, it wasn't just a bunch of people who arrived that had gotten out of hand. Although I have to say that I listened to a lot of the people who are household names, but I also listened in on the depositions of the hundreds of people who showed up that day and then found themselves, um, you know, found themselves in a lot of trouble for having entered the Capitol and for having hurt law enforcement officers. And a lot of those people genuinely believed that they were being patriotic, that they were defending their country and their commander in chief had asked them to come. They were doing what they were supposed to be doing as Americans. Some of them don't have any remorse and some of them really wish they hadn't been so caught up in it because it's really ruined their lives. President uh, is now under indictment for the activities that you uh, relay, that all the months of activities before weeks and months before uh, January 6th and the effort to overturn a free and fair election. Paradoxically, those that indictment and the others that he now faces has strengthened him politically to where he is the putative nominee of the Republican Party and almost certainly will be the nominee of the Republican Party. Knowing what you know now, 
And I ask you this because you're not a particularly partisan person, much to the chagrin of some of your Democratic friends. What are your concerns moving forward here? You talked somewhere I saw about probing targets, which is a military term. Talk to me about that. Probing attack is essentially one where people attack to um, suss out where the weakness, weak, weak spots are so that when they come back for the real attack, they are better able to um, destroy the defenses. And I find that January 6th may have, I think it could have been a probing attack in the sense that um, the they weren't successful in overturning a free and fair election, but they certainly know where the weaknesses are and what to do better next time if there's a desire to um, challenge an election. And I think that's that's concerning to me. Um, our democracy depends on people, um, you know, participating in the electoral process. But when that's all over and all of your um, routes to, uh, you know, recount votes or to contest things in courts, all, when all of that is over, Americans have a responsibility to say, okay, um, you know, and accept the results of the the election. And what's really concerning now is that there are people who are saying that won't who won't commit to accepting the results of the upcoming election. That's not the way that democracies work. You did decide to leave Congress. Talk about why you decided to leave. I believe that we live our lives in chapters, and my children are nine and thirteen right now, and I felt the need to be more present. Um, and it was just really hard to be a part of their lives at a time when I think it's more important that they have me around, even if they don't want that. Yeah. Do you miss public service? I miss being a part of something larger than myself, whether that was working at the Department of Defense or um, being in Congress. Um, I can't say, looking at the way this Congress has un unfolded, I miss sitting on the floor wondering whether or not we're going to take votes or the dysfunction that is um, on display right now. Can you see yourself in public office again? You know, when I left the Department of Defense, I had no idea that I would one day be uh, running for Congress. I know, though, that I am somebody who deeply loves this country. I believe in public service as a way to pay back the debt that my family owes it. And so, you know, if there's an opportunity to serve this country um, at some point, I'm sure I I will be um, interested in it. Well, I hope you get that opportunity. I think the country should hope that you get that opportunity. Thank you. I appreciate that. Stephanie, it's great to be with you. It was great to be with you, too. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Miriam Fender Annenberg. The show is also produced by Saralina Berry, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Steve Lichtai and Haley Thomas. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.